This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just three bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. You must excuse me. I've grown quite weary. This hasn't been easy, I know. But you've learned a lesson. A lesson in honesty. Honesty to yourself and honesty to others. That lesson will stand you in good stead all your life. I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Now I'm catching on to why that's so, to why that's so, to why that's so, to why that's so. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to premium episode number two, the Synanon Cult episode. I am your host, Curly Tlapoyawa. And I am Ruben Ariano Tlacatecal. <laughs> so tonight we're going to be checking out uh, this documentary um, from a series called Deadly Cults. And this is episode eight. It's about the Synanon cult from California. And the reason I picked this is I wanted to explore a little bit about just this cult in general and their bizarre and unique connection to Chicano history that not a lot of people knew about that. I didn't know about it until I picked up this, uh, this book that was recommended to me called the Crusades of Cesar Chavez, a biography. And who is that by? Um, I, I'm glad you asked because I, I was just about to say I need to figure out who wrote this book <laughs> because I have so it. Stinanon, does that relate somehow to Cubonon? <laughs> Cubonon? Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, they, they, they're a little bit similar, I would Chica- believe. Chica- they should have called it Chicanonon, not Stinanon. They yeah. came close. They came close. <laughs> well, this is uh, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez. It's a book, a biography by Miriam Powell. And I will also be referencing a book called From the Jaws of Victory, The Triumph and Tragedy of Cesar Chavez and the Farm Worker movement and let me see who that was written i think that's mike matt garcia isn't it um it might be from the jaws of victory that is by matt garcia yes so we're going to be referencing these two books and you know i've always been interested in in cults and weird beliefs and what draws people in to uh to two organizations like this. And it was really shocking to me to, to learn that Cesar Chavez was an adherent or quite a big fan of this particular cult Synanon to the point that he even brought in some of their organizing methods and leadership methods into the UFW. So, uh, but by the way, what are you, uh, what are you drinking? 
I've got myself a uh, a Lobo IPA right here from the Rio Bravo Brewing Company for this movie night. I am drinking a little mix of tequila with OJ. That's it. Nice. We had some mezcal last night. We had some uh, friends over. Oh, yeah? And they brought over a nice bottle of mezcal. So which ones? Was, which mezcal? Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember, man. <laughs> it was like 47% though. So, wow. Yeah. Got a, got a little out of hand. Mm-hmm. I, it was a, a laid back day today, mm. needless to say. <laughs> so, let's jump right into this. Let's so, wait. Check. So, you say this is um, episode eight of a series? Yeah. It's a series called Deadly Cults. Now, when was this series uh, produced? I have no idea. Is it recent? Is it, is it older? Is it like, I don't know. I'm just curious. Deadly Colts. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, 2019. Okay. Season one. Yeah. So it's recent stuff. Yeah. Good. So this was, uh, this would have come out. Did it come out like in one of the streaming services or? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Cause um, I don't remember. I mean, I've seen a, a couple of, of, uh, you know how Netflix does uh, like a series of, of, like they'll do a deep dive on something for like four episodes or something. Yeah. And so I've seen some of that stuff, but I'm, I'm not familiar with this series. So I'll have to look into it. Yeah. I was just searching around online for Synanon documentaries and I found one that was pretty cool, but they kept editing in whoever put this documentary together, <clears throat> excuse me, put in um, like really popular copywritten music. <laughs> so I was oh. like, ah, we better not use that because mm -hmm. might get in trouble. All right, so let's get started here. Deadly Cults, Synanon. Charles Diederich saw himself as a messiah, a leader that could make people do anything. Synanon touted itself as a model for the world. This isn't just an experimental community. This is a sinister it reminds me of at least what I think of as a cult. They took her and would not let her out. There was evil going on there. I started to get a lot of paranoia about being attacked by people from the outside. Chuck began to advocate Synanon protecting itself by any means possible. This is a first-class opponent. People were armed with machine guns and AK-47s. They would do anything for him, including kill for him. That was a pretty good uh, cold open. Yeah. They would even kill for him. It kind of reminds me of like that cult that was up, I think it was up in Oregon. The cult leader from India, get his name now. It was around the same time, too, I think. Yeah, was that the Wild Wild In the 70s, West Los documentary Angeles, or something? You can see sort of a Maybe. spiritual movement start building up. Especially in Santa Monica, a lot of the craziness that had gone on in the 60s was kind of mellowing out, and Americans were turning inward. I think a lot of them were just really disillusioned with society. 
lot of people were in the market for an alternative lifestyle. So the screen says in... In 1978, Synanon was known as a Los Angeles-based self-care. Synanon creates a template for modern drug treatment in America. Synanon started in 1958 as an addiction rehab place. Its founder, Charles Dieterich, was credited with saying, today's the first day of the rest of your life. The name Synanon comes from Syn, meaning S-Y-N, coming together, and then the non from Alcoholics Anonymous. But as time went by, Synanon members weren't just alcoholics or drug addicts. Other people who were clean started to join. I wasn't a dope addict. I hadn't used drugs. I went to Yale graduate school, but then I decided I had to do something different. So I joined Synanon to make things better for the world. Synanon had a good idea at the beginning. In those days, there were a lot of cult-like communities being started and failing and falling apart. They didn't do anything except hang out together and smoke pot or something. And Synanon was accomplishing something with at least some of the addicts who came there. We were not just detoxing, but training people to be useful members of the community. And Synanon touted itself as becoming a model for the world. I like how this guy's like, you weren't like those other cults smoking dope. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever their differences. We were we against the dope smoking. Kind of, kind of trailed off. In 1978, I, know, you sound like I you was a reporter for the Los Angeles day. Times. It was around this time that I started reporting about these communities. The very first story I did on Synanon was a weird one. This guy's wife was walking on the beach in Santa Monica. Her name was Frances Wynn. She was kind of depressed. And she did have a history of psychosis. And these people started talking to her and she left with them. Just like that. Her husband, meanwhile, is going crazy. Effective recruiting. He didn't know what happened to her except she went for a walk on the beach. And someone said, oh, I think she was talking to some people from Synanon. And it turns out they took her and would not let her out. Wait, so how did they know that she Pretty was soon, Francis Synanon was on a bus up to Northern recruiting. California. She had no idea where she was going or what was going on. They had a, a bus with their name so on the side of it. I uh, right. looking into it. <laughs> And I had to call Synanon to see, why wouldn't you let this woman go? Why won't you let her husband talk to her? But they didn't want to talk about it. Her husband went to the police and they said, she's an adult, this is her choice. There's nothing we can't do. Then he went to Paul. So 
So Paul's a, um, an attorney, Paul yeah, Morantz. Paul Morantz is a lawyer that uh, he contacted. Paul Morantz made a name for himself as a lawyer suing mental health organizations. And he told Synanon, Francis Wynn, we want her back now or there's going to be trouble. At that point, I think Paul Morantz went to pick her up. And Morantz says that when they went to pick her up, everyone was smiling and they all had shaved heads. <laughs> like the and Moonies? He just got That's goosebumps and he knew that something was Was it the Moonies that also, that also shaved their heads or am I thinking of something else? No, I'm thinking of I was the Hare Krishnas, maybe. The Hare Krishnas, that's right. Because um, he was a great source. And he was telling me what was coming out of Sinanon. Paul said, Narda, this is a much bigger story. I can only imagine how many people Sinanon found wandering on the beach who they got into their facility and never let out. Paul Morantz got Francis Wynn back, but he wasn't quite done with Sinanon. Francis Wynn and her husband sued Sinanon for imprisonment and other charges, and they won a settlement. Wow, $300,000? Morantz won and got $300,000 judgment against Sinanon. So basically what, what it looks like, what happened, right, is they, they send these busloads or these buses of Sinanon members down to the beaches or just down yeah. to the wild and look for people who... um or probably alone and probably lost in their thoughts, maybe look like they're having a hard time and they probably just approach them and, and ask them, Hey, how are you doing? And then just kind of recruit, you know, recruit them. Maybe we, Hey, we could help you with that. And then once they get them to their compound, they just don't let them go. But where does an organization like this at that time come up with $300,000 to just dish out for some lawsuit? Well, um, I think they cover it in this documentary, but basically if you're a, if you're a member, ostensibly you joined because you were trying to kick drugs, right? Um, and you were going to live on their compound until you got clean. But eventually what happened, I believe is they just took all of your possessions and you were never allowed to leave. So you were like a full on member of the cult and you just handed over all of your shit. Yeah, I think I, I remember the group that I was referring to earlier. I think it was called Rosh Nishpuram. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but this guy basically, he started out in India and he was like some kind of guru. And over time, this guy who was kind of like a person that was deep into spiritual studies and strong beliefs about, you know, somehow capitalism and sexuality and he, he made this cult and he was kicked out of India and ended up, I think, in Oregon. And he had like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah they called people. him Osho. Yeah, that's they Netflix made a documentary about him called uh, Wild Wild Country. So that's that's what you're referring to. I yeah, that yeah, I called it Wild Wild West, but it's called Wild Wild Country. And so apparently these people like were conducting like bioterrorism against their neighbors who were coming <laughs> after them or something. Yeah. <laughs> Check out the doc. It's really good. Okay. All right. So let's see. Diedrich was just enraged. Three weeks after the lawsuit, Paul Morantz wants to go home and drink a beer and watch game one of the World Series. 
It was in October of 78. It was the Dodgers and the Yankees, I believe. And he's a huge baseball nut. And he's looking forward to it. He gets home to his house. He had one of these houses where the mailbox comes right into the house and you reach in and get your mail. He sees an object in his mailbox. But it's dark inside the mailbox. Then there he sees what looks like a weird looking package. He didn't think anything of it and he put his hand in. And then he had this searing pain. And he is bitten by a rattlesnake. That would suck. Damn. A rattlesnake? He ran out of the house screaming, help me, help me, it's Sinanon. Sinanon got me. They immediately raised him into the hospital and... The first thought I had in my mind was, I hope he's not dead, because rattlesnakes are really bad. The venom can kill you so fast. It says uh, Paul Morantz is placed in intensive care. I went to work, and two Los Angeles police officers from major crimes told me that a rattlesnake had been put in the mailbox. And the occupant in the house had reached in to get his mail and been bitten. And I said, I, I said, what? I was very puzzled by that. It was such an odd way to do anything. Not a gun, not a baseball bat, but a rattlesnake. The Pacific Palisades, where Paul Morantz lived, was full of rattlesnakes. Maybe one of the rattlesnakes crawled in the mailbox. Seemed a little unlikely, but I don't know. So I asked Dr. Finley Russell, because he's the world's leading expert on rattlesnakes, and he said, this rattlesnake that you're showing me pictures of would never be in the Pacific Palisades to crawl into the mailbox. You just look at the scales. The pattern of the scales is different. He said that snake was hundreds of miles further than it could have gone on its own. So that rattlesnake that was in Paul Morantz's mailbox was transported. As I'm hearing him talk, my prosecutor's mind is going, and I'm thinking, this is good, good evidence. This could be an attempt to commit murder. So. I want to I want to pause it right there, and I want to refer to the the book from the Jaws of Victory: The Triumph and Tragedy of Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Movement. Um, just to give people a little bit of context um, about the relationship to Cesar Chavez and Sinanon. So. The book states, during the 1960s and early 1970s, this new way of thinking included an embrace of progressive ideas, such as interracial marriage and a practice Diedrich, Diedrich being the leader of Synanon, called hustling, encouraging the donation of products, 
food and clothing to sustain the foundation. Sinanon's success in attracting gifts led to surpluses that he shared with allied organizations, a process he deemed anti-hustling, which I don't understand why he called it that. <laughs> um, he saw the work of Cesar Chavez and the UFW as worthy of help and directed much of the group's anti-hustling to the union in times of need. The donations created an enduring bond between the two men and opened Chavez to the possibility of incorporating some of Sinanon's management practices into the union. I don't know if that included putting rattlesnakes in lawyers' mailboxes, but I would assume not. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> now, yeah, I don't think Chavez is a snake handler. <laughs> that, that's kind of an interesting thought though right <laughs> seeing Chavez doing the snake dance <laughs> like the healers out in the, in the deep south you have been listening to a sample of a premium episode of Tales from Astlantis for a mere $3 a month you will get access to our premium content every two weeks, as well as to the ever-expanding library of premium episodes. So visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium. Thank you for listening. Timo Itase. Thank you for listening to Tales from Astlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, Timo Itase. <laughs>